if you had all the money in the world, money were no object to you, you still couldn't buy the marriage of your dreams. You could probably get someone to marry you, but you couldn't buy the marriage of your dreams. You couldn't make your kids love Jesus. That's my list. And for some of you, maybe that's your parents or it's a spouse, but you couldn't make anyone love Jesus with dollars. You couldn't buy happiness or satisfaction. You couldn't fill the void in your heart that can only be filled by God. You can't buy life. And I reflected on this one for a little bit because I thought, well, there's a lot of medical stuff out there and surgeries and medications, but the Scripture says it's appointed for man to die. Everyone has a day that's been appointed for you to die, and you'll face judgment. And no amount of money can get you out of that. In the same manner, you cannot purchase eternal life. You cannot purchase heaven. You can't purchase time. I emailed a few friends to see what would you buy, like what would you think of. And one of my friends, a very busy guy, emails me back and said, somehow I'd try to buy more time. I wrote him back and said, sorry, bro. <laughs> Everybody's got the same amount. It's one of the equalizers of time. Each one of us who has today has 24 hours, and how we'll use it is up to us. But you can't buy time. can't buy peace, not real peace. You can't purchase love. It's kind of like marriage. You, you can get people to want to be around you and say nice things to you and all that stuff if you have all the money in the world, but you can't, you can't make them love you. And you also can't buy patience or kindness or faithfulness or gentleness or goodness or self-control or joy or the Holy Spirit. See, these are all gifts from God. And you can summarize all gifts from God, whether that's time, whether it's eternal life, uh, whether it's Jesus, whether it's the Holy Spirit, whether it's the Father, whether it's that relationship, or whether it's you know, any of the fruits of the Spirit that I mentioned. You could all call all those things God's grace. Can you imagine even trying to buy God's grace? There's a guy in our passage of Scripture today, and that's exactly what he tries to do. And what we could easily do with this guy is look at him and, and almost be appalled. But what I think we're going to find out is that we're a lot more like him than we realize. If you have your Bibles, we're talking about Acts chapter 8 today. We're going to start reading in verse 4. And I'm going to go all the way through verse 24, 25, reading. And then we'll go back through and, and break this passage down. But you start looking at this passage, and what's just happened is the first Christian martyr. Last week, we looked at Stephen. And Stephen was killed for his faith. He died for Jesus because he was living for Jesus. And what we see happen in this passage is exactly the same thing that we see God do. It's it's what he does. He takes pain, he takes difficulty, he takes our junk, and he redeems it for our good and for his glory. Back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, God gave us his mission for us. that As believers, we'd be his witnesses. And he even gives locations to these specific believers. He says, in Jerusalem, in your world, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Acts chapter 1 through 7, and if you haven't noticed, it's all been in Jerusalem. It's really primarily a Jewish church that's taken place. People from all kinds of nationalities, but all Jewish. That had come for the Passover, they're there at the day of Pentecost, it's all in Jerusalem. And the church doesn't start to spread to Judea and Samaria until after there's persecution. And it's kind of like Joseph when he says in Genesis chapter 50 to his brothers after they sold him to slavery and pretended he was dead, and he says, you know, you intended to harm me. But God used it for good and for the saving of many lives. And what happens in Acts chapter 7 is that that some wicked men kill a guy because of his faith. They intended to harm him. They intended to stop this movement of God. But God is using it for the saving of many lives. Look what happens. Verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word. So they had to leave Jerusalem now because they're ravaging the church in Jerusalem. And those who are scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they paid close attention to what he said. And with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. 
Now we meet a new character, verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, and it amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. (laughs) So he told other people how great he was. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, because there's no other name by which men should be saved, they were baptized both men and women. And Simon himself believed and was baptized and followed Philip wherever, everywhere he went. And he was astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. And then when this happened, the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God and they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, this gift, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered him, May your money perish with you. Strong words for a guy who's professed to believe. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such an evil thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Get me out of this circumstance. Don't let those consequences come. And here we've got in this passage of Scripture, it really breaks down into two sections. A good news section, a bad news section. The first section, you've got people trusting Christ. For the first time, the gospel, the church is taking the gospel to a place called Samaria. It's going outside Jerusalem. And people are hearing the message of Jesus Christ. God's doing amazing miracles, changing people's lives. And people are getting saved. They're getting baptized. They're saying, I want to identify with Jesus. And then you've got another section where there's this guy who sees the grace of God and sees what God's doing, is drawn in by the miracles, and he wants to buy God's grace. Good news, bad news. And today we're going to break our outline down into two sections, good news and bad news. And we'll talk about the good news first. The good news is this, that God's grace is for all. God's grace is for all. Every kind of person, all people. And we see that, first of all, by who God sends. And you think about what's happening here. What's happening here is very significant in the book of Acts, in the history of the church, and Christianity as a whole, is that Christianity is not just a Jewish religion. See, Samaritans, where they're going to, they weren't either Jew nor Gentile. They're kind of a mixed breed of people, and so it's going to all kinds of different people. And if you think about this happening, imagine that you're supposed to strategically plan who you're going to send in order to make this happen. If you're going to pick somebody to be the initiator, you know, blaze new trails for the kingdom of God, and you're in God's situation, who are you going to pick? I'll tell you, if it's me, I'm picking Peter. Because the guy's already got a track record. He's the one who preached in Jerusalem. The church got started there. And he's kind of the leader of the apostles. If Peter can't go, I'm picking John. If John can't go, because John's always there with Peter, right? They're kind of partners and buddies in this deal. And John, he didn't say as much, but he, when he, he's there. God does stuff. and John's not able to go. I'm picking at least one of the 12. But God sends this Philip guy. Who is this? He's not one of the 12. There is a disciple named Philip, not the same guy. So who's Philip? Because if, if I were to ask you, if you were to come in here this morning, uh, before we even open up the passage of Scripture, and I would say to you, you know, write down the ten most influential characters in the Bible. Anybody name it? Philip? How about 25? 
50. Do you even think of Philip? I mean, who is this Philip guy? He's not one of the 12. He's not in Hebrews chapter 11. He doesn't show up in some of these, you know, heroes of the faith devotionals that we'll come across. And so who's this Philip guy? You know who Philip is? He's a layman. He's got another job other than just telling people about Jesus Christ as a job. You know, some people are professional Christians, <laughs> like me. It's like your job to be a Christian, right? I mean, you're supposed to tell people about Jesus. like my job to do that. And the apostles, they hold this office. With this Philip guy, who is he? Is he, is he a teacher? Or a doctor? Or maybe he's a police officer? Perhaps he runs the Jerusalem Stock Exchange, and he's checking his smartphone between Jerusalem and Samaria. Maybe he's a dentist. Danny, I don't know if there's dentists in the Bible, and everybody had dirty teeth. I don't, I don't know. But he's got a different job, but God's still using him in a significant way. Do you know why? Because God's grace is for all people. And look at how he's using him. Verse 5. It says, Philip, he went down to a city in Samaria. He proclaimed the Christ. He's using him to tell people about Jesus Christ. So you mean Acts chapter 1, verse 8 wasn't just for those 12 those apostles? It's for this guy too. And it's for you and it's for me. And then you look at what happens here. He says, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. They were receptive to this message. And with shrieks, evil spirits came out of people. You know, interesting thing I learned this week is that you can go back through and see a bunch of those heroes of the faith. Moses, Elijah, uh, you know, Isaiah, Job, all those different guys, right? None of them ever cast out a demon. Not one. It wasn't until Jesus that a demon was cast out of anyone in Scripture. And then you see Peter do it, and you see Philip do it, and God's using Philip in a significant way because God's grace is for all people. And so it's for you, and God wants to use you. But it's not just who he sends, it's who he sends people to. It's the Samaritans. You saw that back up in verse 5. He sent them to Samaria, and we don't know exactly which city he went to in Samaria, but he's going to a city, a specific city, where there's a a dense population probably, where there's a well-known guy named Simon in Samaria. Now when you and I hear that, uh, that doesn't really ring bells for us. It, it doesn't set us off. Like, why is he going to those people? Um, however, it would to people in Jerusalem. It would to Jewish people. A lot of times when you and I think of Samaritans, we think of the, the parable of the good Samaritan. And we think Samaritans are good. Or maybe we think of uh, the ministry of Samaritan's Purse, you know, a ministry that it's there. When there's disaster, you see them there doing good things. And so the idea of Samaritan to us kind of has a good connotation. It couldn't be more different in the Bible than, than what it is for us. It'd be the equivalent, they, Jews would hate Samaritans kind of like, and I struggle to find an analogy that would get you to see the emotion of this, it'd be kind of like, maybe a little bit more intense, than how radical terrorists want to kill Americans in the West. How they hate Western lifestyle, how they hate Hollywood, how they hate, they want to you know, bomb us, blow up buildings, kill people, do all kinds of stuff. That, that's how Jews view Samaritans, Samaritans hated Jews too. Their hatred for one another wasn't just racial, but it was that. It wasn't just religious, but it was that. They thought, the Jews thought that Samaritans were half-breeds and heretics. You see, they didn't even have an identity, is the way they viewed Samaritans. Because what happened, if you read, a, and this goes centuries back, if you read the Old Testament, uh, a lot of the times uh, people of God would be disobedient. There were northern tribes and southern tribes. The Samaritans were in the northern tribes. And when they went off into exile for punishment for that, they intermarried with Canaanites. And so they viewed the people as half-breeds. The people from the southern uh, tribes, they didn't do that. And so they viewed themselves as pure Jews. And now these people, the Jews don't view them as Gentile. They don't view them as Jewish. They have no identity. They're just Samaritan dogs, half-breeds. 
And not only that, but they had their own temple they built to rival the Jewish temple. So there's this bitter rivalry that starts to build between them. They had their own version of the Bible that was different than the Bible that the Jews had, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So there's religious tension, and they believe these people are not only different, they're dangerous. They're sending people to hell. There's one commentator that I read this week, Kent Hughes, in his commentary recorded some prayers that people would pray about Samaritans. One of the prayers was this, God, at the resurrection, don't remember any of them. Think about how much you have to hate someone to want them to spend eternity separated from God in torment. And that's how they would pray for these people. And here you see the gospel's going to these people because God's grace is for all people. And think about what this did to the life of the church. And what you see is these people were receptive to the gospel, which is interesting to me when you think about if anybody thought this maybe was a kind of Jewish message and somebody was going to be tense, it'd be these people. But then you start to think about who they are. And you start to think about, this isn't the first time the gospel went to them. Remember there was a time in, in the scriptures where Jesus himself went to Samaria, which was not normal, perhaps controversial. And Jesus not only spoke to a Samaritan there, he spoke to a Samaritan woman. And not only did he speak to a Samaritan woman, he spoke to a Samaritan woman who had a reputation in John chapter 4. And he goes there and has this controversial conversation. And at first she's shocked, you're a Jewish man and you're speaking to me then when he gets past that and begins to talk with her, he sees that, she's, that Jesus is someone special. And so they start to have this conversation, and what you end up seeing is she responds to the gospel. She responds to him and who he is as the Messiah and brings this whole village of people, and they respond to the gospel. And I started to think about that and think, why are they so receptive? And then you've got people that know the scriptures, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and different folks that are so religious and they're resistant. And you know what the difference is? Pride. Pride is perhaps the largest obstacle to anyone being receptive to God's grace. See, God's grace is for everybody, but a lot of times we resist God's grace. A lot of times it's pride is the very thing that causes us to fight it. Because think about the gospel in essence of when you trusted Christ as your Savior. What did you have to do? You didn't say, like, I made a couple mistakes. You weren't like, hey, there's something wrong with my operating system. You know, I have a weakness. God, I need your help. It was, God, I'm hopeless, and I'm helpless without you. I need you. I, I am at the core a sinner for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're all like sheep. We've gone astray. Our works are like a pile of dirty rags before God. You go scripture after scripture about how it's true that, that we're not just, you know, messed up a little bit. We're broken people. And in order to come to Christ, you've got to acknowledge your brokenness before him. See, in order to understand grace, in order to know grace, you have to know brokenness. And brokenness isn't something you learn from reading a book or hearing somebody else talk about it. In order to know grace, you have to know brokenness because what happens is that it strips away the arrogance. It strips away the pride. And here you've got these people, the Samaritans in our passage here and in John chapter 4, and they're receptive to the gospel. Why? Because those walls have been broken down already. They're outcast. They know how they're thought of. They know how they're treated. So when they hear a message of grace, they're ready. Just like the prostitutes, just like the tax collectors, the various people you see through Scripture and you see that God's grace is for all, but some of us fight it. And we know that we can't win a battle with God, but it's interesting how we'll wrestle with God, isn't it? It's kind of like, did you wrestle when you were a kid at all? Those of you who are older now, and I don't mean like competitively wrestle, that would count, but I'm not just talking about that. I just mean like with your siblings uh, or in the neighborhood, wrestle with other kids. I remember growing up, we would wrestle, and in my day, this will date me a little bit, and uh, I'm making a somewhat of a confession. I watched WWF wrestling when I was a kid. All right, it feels good to get that out there. Now you just know, right? So we pretend sometimes to be, you know, 
King Kong Bundy, if you like the big guys, or Hillbilly Jim, if you're a redneck, or you know, Hulk Hogan, if you want to win every time, or Macho Man. See, I, I could go through all of the guys. There, I know all the guys. Jake the Snake, and you know, all the, they're all out there. And Ric Flair, I saw Ric Flair at a hockey game the other day. Woo, you know, it was great. They're all out there. But I'm not talking about that kind of wrestling. I'm not talking about, you know, some intricate scoring system wrestling. I'm just talking about, like, you you got your brother in a headlock, or you're, you're wrestling with some of the other kids in the neighborhood. How do you know if someone wins? How do you know if someone, you maybe you had a word that you'd say, but how do you know if they win? You know, uncle, mercy, just rubbing their face in mud, you know, mercy, you know, choking. It's because they quit. They stop fighting. They surrender. Now, I remember, too, when I was a kid, there was a uh, boy in our neighborhood who was a little bit older than the rest of us, a little bit smarter than the rest of us, a little bit faster than the rest of us, a little bit stronger than the rest of us. His name was Jeff. He'd do these moves on us when we go to fight. And we called him by his name. We called him Lane. So his last name was Lane. He'd come up and he'd fake like he's going to hit you in the head. And you'd go up to block. And then he'd hit you in the ribs. And so once that happens a couple times, you know how it works, right? And so you keep your arms down. Whack! He just hits you in the ears. You know, can't win. Now, why is it, though, when Jeff would come to wrestle or fight, everyone didn't just go, no, I'm good. I'm not, I know. It's not like we don't know that God's more is stronger than us. He, he's omnipotent, okay? He's all-powerful. He knows our moves. There's no, you can't be fast enough. He's got it all down. But we still fight with him. Do you know why? Same reason we enter into that wrestling match with a guy like Jeff. Pride. Pride's what makes you not step back. I mean, you, you might have made some mistakes in your life, but you're better than the next person, right? I mean, you're not that bad. That's arrogance. That's Pride. That's incredibly dangerous stuff. The Proverbs say it like this. In Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 5, it says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. James chapter 4 and verse 6, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. That means surrender. Give up. Some of us, we, we fight God. And you hear a message where you hear a point like, God's grace is for all. And you know what you expect to hear? Me telling you some story about some person, whether they're in our church, outside our church, in the Bible, that is so bad, but they still receive God's grace. And so you know what you're doing is you're assuming God's grace is for them. You don't think, we're talking about you. We're talking about me. And we talk about God's grace is for all. It was for the Samaritans. It was for the woman at the well. It was for the people in Acts chapter 8. And they were receptive to the message. Why? Because that pride was stripped back. The arrogance was gone. And what do you think it was like in that conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4? When Jesus says to her, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. She says, that's right. You've had five. The guy you're living with now, he's not your husband. What do you think that was like for her? In other words, you've been trying to fill a void in your life that relationships can't fill, money can't fill, no accomplishments can fill. Only Jesus Christ could fill. And you know what happens after that? She responds to the gospel. She takes off into her village. She starts telling people, come see a guy who's told me everything I ever did. There were at least six guys in that town that were real interested in that conversation. And they all start coming. And in the meantime, Jesus' disciples, Jewish guys, they all come back. And you know what Jesus says to them as this village of Samaritans is coming? He says to these Jewish men, they say four months until the harvest, look out and I'll tell you, the harvest is ripe. 
And here come all these Samaritans. You know what he was teaching them? God's grace is for all. For you Jewish men, for the Samaritans. For black people, for white people. Not just for people that live in our little corner of the world and have personalities like us and thought processes and worldviews like us. It's for everybody. And that's what the scripture says. When the angels come to declare the birth of Jesus Christ, what do they say in Luke chapter 2, verse 10? Behold, I give you good news. It'll be great joy for all the people. When we're given our mission to live on as followers of Jesus Christ, after Jesus' resurrection, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's every tribe, every tongue, every person. And then you read in the scriptures, you continue to read, you know what the great deal is? Even with our lives, he tells us the end of the story. Book of Revelation. We don't read it very often. We're promised we're blessed if we read this book. There's a glimpse of heaven in this book. Revelation chapter 7, do you know what it says in verse 9? It says, after this, I looked, it's the Apostle John. He says, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. So many people you couldn't count them. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne. So guess what? The mission gets accomplished, whether we're a part of it or not. God accomplishes his mission. And no one could count these people. And they come from every nation and every tribe and people and language. Standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And guess what? They were crying out to God. And a loud voice, salvation, grace, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And it's for all people. Think about a multitude of people that no one could count from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Do you know how many different stories are represented in that? Different backgrounds, different sins, different life experiences, different talents, different abilities, different intelligence levels, different ages, different health issues. Everybody's got a story, but there's this common thread of God's grace being for all people. We've seen it in our church. About a year ago, we did a series called Grace Stories. And what we did is we looked at different stories in the Bible of God transforming people's lives. And then we also talked about people from our church. And just in that series, you can go back on our website, and it's under stories. You can see a bunch of the stories. All kinds of different people. Single people, married people, older people, younger people, different people. Different stories. There was one guy came out of a cult, cult of legalism, and you know what? He heard about God's grace, transformed his life. A woman who ran off on her husband and uh, was looking for something else, ended up at this church, heard about God's love, and went back to her husband, God's grace. Somebody who was abused, somebody who experienced abortions, couples who didn't have their dreams come true. You see all these different stories, and each one of you has a story. And you know what's common about each one of us? God's grace is for all of us, because God's grace is for all people. And once you receive that grace, then it's our job to give it to all people. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, everyone we come into contact with. We talk about it at our church sometimes, 10x. Uh, it's not just language. We try to code so you don't know what we're talking about. We're talking about each one of our, our people that are here and, and committed to our vision of connecting people to Jesus for life change. Connecting at least 10 people to Christ over the next 10 years. It's one person a year. It's a pretty small goal. But we start with, let's just be intentional about at least the people God's placed in our lives. You know what? God brings people from all over the world to the triangle. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. It's for all people. That's the good news. The bad news is this. Not all people will receive God's grace. The good news is God's grace is for all. Bad news is not all people will receive God's grace. Part 2 of the story, verse 9. And we see this guy. His name's Simon. It says, now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery. That's magic, in a sense. It's kind of a, a mixture of science and superstition would be what their sorcery was. And he did that in the city. And he had power. It didn't come from God, but he had power. Kind of scary. And amazed all of the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. Talk about pride. And all the people, from all kinds of different backgrounds, jobs, all kinds of schooling, both high and low, 
They gave him their attention. They exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. And we don't know exactly what that means. Scholars debate about this. Was he claiming to be God in some sense or having an access to God? Is something divine? I was wrong. And they followed him because they had been amazed for a long time at his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. And so they believed in the name of Jesus Christ. And so they turned from following the sorcerer, they turned from following Simon, and they were baptized. And when you're baptized, what you're doing is you're making a public proclamation that I'm identifying with Jesus Christ now. Amazing stuff. Both men and women did this. And verse 13 says, and Simon himself believed and was baptized. And that sounds like great news. And he goes around with Philip. Maybe he shares testimony as Philip's sharing Christ with people. He followed Philip everywhere, but look at the content of his belief. He's astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. doesn't say anything about his connection with the name of Jesus Christ. He makes a profession, he believes, appears to have the belief like a demon. It's mentioned in James chapter 2, and verse 19. It says, you believe? Good. Even the demons believe, and they are scared of God. But they lack faith. And Simon seems to be a guy who lacks faith. We'll see that in just a moment. There's this little parenthetical thing that happens here in verses 14 through 17 where Peter and John are now sent on the scene to Samaria from the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because they're representatives of the church in Jerusalem. And what God's doing here is he's preserving the unity of the church. So there wasn't just a Jerusalem church, and now there's a Samaritan church. And and what you see here is something that could be somewhat troublesome to some of us. It says in verse 17, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now they've already been baptized, and they've already believed, and now they're receiving the Holy Spirit? What's going on here? And what we'd like is we'd like a formula, but in the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is a transitionary book between what was happening in the Gospels to what happens in the, in the church, is that you don't see a formula for the Holy Spirit. You see, sometimes people receive the Spirit before they get baptized. Sometimes you see people receive the Spirit when hands are laid on them. Sometimes it happens at baptism. Sometimes it happens after baptism. And here it happens after baptism. And why would God hold off? Because we read passages of Scripture like in Romans where it says, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. So it seems like as soon as you trust Christ, you have the Spirit. Well, God's doing something unique here in this situation because there's been centuries of bitter rivalry between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so they're not going to have a Samaritan church and a Jewish church, a Jerusalem church. So that's why Peter and John, the two, you know, the, the big guys, the high representatives, they come on the scene. And they say, you know what? God's really at work here. The Samaritans are genuinely placing their faith in Christ, and they lay hands on them. And then we have here probably a Samaritan Pentecost to preserve the unity, because the unity of the church is very important to God. Well, much more important than it is to many of us. The unity of the church is so important. He has the guys from Jerusalem come here, so it's not one church and another church, and they can argue just like they did about one temple and another temple and one version of Scripture and another version of Scripture. No, they're one church. They're just in different places, and there's different people and different preferences and all that stuff, but they're one church. And so they come and they lay hands on them, and the Samaritan Pentecost takes place. You, somehow you can visually tell these people are receiving the Spirit. It doesn't tell us how. Maybe they spoke in tongues. Maybe something else happened. But Simon sees it, verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Apparently for Simon, money was no object. And he said, give me also the ability to lay hands on everyone on whom I lay my hands. They may receive the Holy Spirit. So here you've got a guy, it was said of him earlier in this passage, that he had all the people's attention. And then they turned their attention away from Simon, now to Jesus Christ, because that's what Philip was preaching. And so what you see happen here, it's really kind of pathetic. It's kind of like a, a childhood actor. Ever seen a childhood actor? And they had the you know, popularity when they were a kid, and they were on some show or whatever it was, and they had the, you know, kind of the influence, and they, they got money from all that deal. And then they come later in life, they still have money, 
uh, maybe, uh, but they don't have the popularity and they don't have the power anymore. And so then they're like living in some house with a bunch of random people doing it, just like stupid. And you're like, come on, man, like cut it out. You had your day. Simon can't come to grips with that. He wants, he doesn't want the Holy Spirit. He wants the ability to give other people the Holy Spirit. He lost the attention. He wants the attention back. If you think that Simon's a genuine believer, then deal with these comments by Peter. Peter answered, may your money perish with you. J.B. Phillips translates it a little bit harsher than that. He says this in a Phillips translation. You can look it up online. He says, to hell with you and your money. Which sounds like he's swearing at him, you know, to hell with you. What he's doing is he's warning them. You're on your way to hell. You're hell bound, Simon. To hell with you and your money. Your money can go with you. It's not doing you any good. He goes on and he says, you have no part or no share Two words mean the exact same thing. You've got no portion in this ministry. The word there's a word in the, in the logos. It could be the gospel. You've got no portion in the gospel because your heart is not right before God. It's not straight. It's not honest before God. You've deceived yourself, Simon. And so here we've got a, a scary thing here of false faith. You've got a guy who's heard the gospel. You've got a guy who's made a public profession of faith. He's been baptized. And Peter's telling him, you're not converted. That should be scary for many people in the church. And why is it? Because your heart is not right before God. You're not honest before God about where you stand. You might believe the right facts. You don't have faith. And so he tells him, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord, and perhaps he will forgive you. Not because God can't forgive us. Will you, for, will you repent for having such a thought in your heart? For I see that you are full of bitterness and you're in prison to sin. You're held captive to sin. Here's the deal. You're trying to buy God's grace. You're not going to get God's grace trying to buy God's grace. You know why? Because you make it no longer God's grace. Grace is a gift that's given to us. The wages of our sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift that's given to us. It's like this week my uh, six-year-old daughter just had her six-year-old birthday party. So she had a, uh, you know, friends over. We had a little party. Gave her some gifts. Uh, one of the gifts I gave her was probably the most popular gift was a slip and slide. Do you remember those? Broken ankle waiting to happen, right? It's awesome until that happens, though. It's great. Put the hose on there. It's like garbage bags sewn together and slide down the thing. It's, it's great. So I, I went and bought one of these, paid money for it, and uh, gave it to my daughter. And can you imagine if I handed it to my six-year-old daughter, Ava, and then she looks up at me and says, Dad, I wanted this gift. Here's a 10 spot. You know, I'm trying to reimburse you for the present, Dad. It wouldn't be a gift anymore. No, you, you don't get it, Ava. You, you, you don't pay for a gift. It takes away from the fact that it's a gift. Now, it doesn't mean the gift didn't cost anything. I had to buy it. It doesn't mean that grace is free. Jesus Christ had to die so that you could have grace. It's not free. You've got to understand your sin. That's what made him pay. That's what, what helps you understand grace. But it's free to you. It's being freely offered to you. You don't pay him back for it. And what if Ava said to me, well, here's the deal, Dad. I love this gift. I've been wanting this gift, so I'm going to mow the lawn next week. Well, I'd be blown away for one. This didn't happen. But... And I'm going to wash your car. I'm going to earn the gift. I'm going to pay you back. I'd be like, Ava, you don't get it. That's, it's a gift. You don't do that. I mean, if you want to mow the lawn and you want to wash the car, that's fabulous. However, not for the gift. Or what if she said, Dad, here's the deal. I am going to call you every day next week and talk to you about the gift try and get you to give me the gift or try and get to pay you back for the gift. And see, we can look at this passage of Scripture and see a guy like Simon and be appalled. Like, who's going to say, God, you know, here's a hundred bucks for salvation. Nobody's doing that, I don't think. 
Maybe they give some money thinking somehow that gets them some special blessing from God. That'd still be wrong. But how many people would say, you know, I'm going to earn God's grace. I'll just, and what if Ava said to me, I'll be a good little girl for two weeks. I'll do everything you say. We'll just be good little boys and good little girls, and somehow then we deserve God's grace. Or I'll just serve extra, and I'll do these things, and, and I'll earn your grace, God. Or I'll pray to you more. I'll fast. I'll do these things so that I can have. And what is it we really want? And what it is, is we're, we don't get God's grace because God's grace is a gift. And what we're trying to get is something else. But let's talk, go a little bit deeper. And why is it that we do this? It's because we have certain things we want God to give us. We don't necessarily want what he's offering us, which was the case here for Simon. But we want things specifically. And, and you, you, your things might be different. Maybe you've prayed like this before. You know, God, if you just give me this job, I'll go to church forever. Or, you know, just give me a husband and I'll never sin again. You know, we just, whatever your thing is, your heart's desire. And you, and you know what you're doing? You're trying to manipulate God. And sometimes we don't say it out loud. Maybe we've matured past the point of knowing that, so we try to deceive ourselves. Our hearts are not straight. Our hearts are not honest before God. And what we do is we try to manipulate God with our obedience. We try to manipulate God with our prayers. We try to manipulate God. We try to get something out of God other than what he's actually offering us. You know what he's offering us? It's himself. He's offering us a relationship with him. And if we're candid, many of us don't want that. What we want is we want his love. Who doesn't want to be loved? And we want his forgiveness. And we want his mercy. And we want his kindness. But we don't want to have to deal with him as a whole. We don't want to deal with his majesty. Like, think about majesty for just a, a millisecond. How majestic God is. Do you know what that causes you to do? It causes you to reflect on yourself. You see that with everybody who comes into encounter with God in the scriptures. We don't want to deal with that. Or holiness. We sing about holiness. That's a standard we don't want to mess with. If we're real camp. Maybe in a moment with a bunch of people singing a song, but alone with God. Sovereignty, that means he's in control. We're not. That's what he's offering. He's offering himself. What we oftentimes want is we want the benefits of a relationship with God without the commitment of a relationship to God. It's like somebody who uses in a, in a dating relationship, you know, a woman who wants the money from a guy, and so she'll do what she needs to do to get the money. She doesn't really want the guy, or a guy who wants the body of a woman, and he'll do what he needs to do to get the body. He doesn't really want the person. And we do that with God. We don't really want him. We want his gifts. We want his stuff. We want his forgiveness. We want his love. We want his mercy. We want his blessings. We want you fill in the blank with the stuff we want. And then we say, well, that's not, I wouldn't do that in pride. Our hearts are not honest. We have to be honest in our hearts before God. And what does, Peter, or what does yeah, Peter say here to Simon? He says, you need to repent. Your heart is not right. It is not straight before God. It is not honest. You need to be honest before God. He already knows, and you're in trouble. And then what does it happen? Simon, he doesn't get it. He doesn't pray. He doesn't repent. Verse 24. He says, you pray for me because your prayers like count more, Peter, and so this stuff doesn't happen to me because I don't want the consequences. He doesn't want God. It's again, he just wants things to happen his way. He just wants the gifts of God. He just wants the blessings of God. He'd be cool with going to heaven and God wasn't there. As long as there's no crying and no pain and no tears and none of that stuff. And the same is true for many of us, and so we need to repent. See, God's grace is for everybody. Some of us, we arrogantly think we have it, and we've missed it because we've missed him. And so if you could have anything in the world, anything at all, would God even show up on the list? And if not, we've got some heart reflection to do. Some of us have some repentance that needs to take place. And that's what we're going to do. We're not just going to talk about it. So we're going to bow our hearts, bow our heads before the Lord. I'm going to give you a couple moments to 
just talk to the Lord. The worship team will come. They'll play some music, mostly just to cover, you know, coughing and moving around and all that stuff so that you can focus. I just want to give you a couple moments just to talk to God and say, God, is my heart right? Is my heart straight? Examine me. Know me. Show me. Show me my heart. Sometimes we deceive ourselves. God's grace is for you, and he longs to give it to you as a gift, and it's a free gift, but you have to receive it. The way you receive it is you honestly, you want him. Not just as gifts, you want him. Let's just ask yourself the question if that's what you want. Some of you may need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you do, um, you're acknowledging that you're a sinner, that you are broken, that you could never possibly please God on your own, that the wages of your sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ, who died. He gave his life for you on the cross so that you could have life. And what you do is you call out to him. If in your heart you're willing to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you call out to him and just say, God, I want to trust your son Jesus to be my Savior today. And you can do that right as you sit in your seat. For some of you, believers in Jesus Christ, just try to manipulate, play God, whatever phrases you want to use, repent of that. He knows already. But do you? I'll start us in some prayer. Father God, we just ask as we come before you that you'd strip away any pride, any arrogance, and you'd show us our hearts. Show us your son Jesus. Give us a longing and desire for him. Give us a longing and desire for you and to be in your presence, to want that more than anything in this world, to want that more than any circumstances that we would want to manipulate, more, more than even though we want your gifts, God, that we'd want you. Let's give you a couple moments to pray to the Lord.